Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see this is hcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. And we believe that time to start researching that, understanding those use cases is now so that we can start to guide potentially whether they're operating system level, at an application level, at a service level, yeah. what those engagements might be. And also uh, the individual's perspective on that, their levels of trust and safety. Hello and welcome to This Is Hate City. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a designer, educator and the host of This Is Hate City based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. In this episode, I caught up with Oliver Wiedlich of Contextual in Sydney, formerly known as Mobile Experience. Now, I've met Oliver several times over the years whilst I was living in Sydney and always in passing though, and never really in detail, but was always hugely impressed whenever I saw him speak about design and user experience in particular. And here is no different. We focus our conversation on spatial computing and get straight into the nitty gritty of what this is, how it will radically change how we design services and experiences. We chat about the complexity of data ownership and build on the conversation threads that myself and Scott Jensen spoke about several months ago. Oliver is awesome and I know you're gonna really, really love this conversation. Now, if you like what we're doing at This Is HCD, you can help us out by doing a few things. You can hit the follow button or the subscribe button wherever you are. It'll mean we stay in touch and you can get notified when a new episode drops. You can leave a review for us or go one better and become a patron on the podcast by going to thisishcd.com. You can get an ad-free stream for as little as €1.66 per month and you get a shout out as thanks. There's other plans there where you can get exclusive items too, such as a notebook or a t-shirt or a hoodie. And all the money goes towards editing, hosting and maintaining a website, which is a repository for human centered design goodness with over 250 episodes. Anyway, folks, I've rambled on. Let's jump straight in. Oliver, great to have you on the podcast. Um, delighted to have you here. But for our listeners, maybe start off with talk a little bit about yourself. Tell us where you're from, what you do. Um, let's go. Let's talk. Great. <laughs> so my current role, let's start with that, and then we, we can work uh, backwards from there. So currently I'm the Director of Design and Innovation, which sounds very fancy. Ooh, that's a, fancy uh, one. A, a UX consultancy based in Sydney called Contextual. And for many years, for the past 13 years, we've been known as Mobile Experience. Yeah. Uh, and we recently changed our name last year, and uh, we may come back and talk about that in a bit more detail. Yeah. But prior to that, uh, I've now spent, I suppose, over 23 years UX consulting uh, in and around Sydney uh, and and working with all the, the big blue chip companies and corporates here in Australia, right through to startups and advisory roles and so on. Let's go back to the beginning um, and talk not even about mobile experience, but the stuff that you did uh, in university. Um, well, what did you study? Um, was it in Sydney or was it the Central Coast, you say? Uh, I studied in Newcastle, University of Newcastle, Yeah, uh, so a bit north of the central coast, a couple of hours north of Sydney. And uh, I initially wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and I wanted to work with people in some form, and psychology seemed to be the right thing, whether mm. I was going to do sports psychology or forensic psychology or clinical psychology, or I wasn't quite sure. So I started out in that path, and I, I did a four-year undergrad uh, there, and at the end of that, I uh, 
I could have, there were options to do clinical or a master's in organizational psychology. And let's face mm. it, I didn't make the cut for the clinical. So I gave the organizational psychology a crack. <laughs> and as part of that, uh, we did a couple of subjects in HCI as well as a bunch of psychology uh-huh. testing. It's fortuitous. Indeed. Yeah. What yeah. clinical and- I've done is what we gained. Yes, <laughs> well, well, let's do. But uh, and and that sort of really uh, that those subjects in HCI really were of interest to me. I'd grown up using computers from quite an early age. Both my parents were teachers, but my dad taught computing as well. And he would bring home the tap- Apple Two E's and the Apple Two C's and the SC Thirty. Wow. We end up getting and stuff. So I, I was using computers uh, and Amstrads and other things as well, but as a tool to achieve an outcome, not because mm-hmm. I was necessarily interested in the code, although, you know, in later years I, I learned about code to a degree, uh, but it was some, it was a tool to help somebody achieve something. And yeah. I really liked that way they could enable people uh, to achieve something far greater than, than without it. So I thought yeah. that was really powerful. At that time, like it's, and again, I'm not coming at this uh, with ageism, but it was in the 80s. It would have been the Apple II, did you say? Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah exactly. So for people listening who, who might be on the younger end of uh, you know the practitioner age, computers way back then didn't have the interfaces that we would know now. So using computers to enable a task wasn't as sexy as it was now. Like It would have been very much um, code base. You probably would have been using the literal, the big, large, one of the, the disks there wasn't even a flop. Yeah. So, yeah, it was command line and, and so on, mm-hmm. especially obviously with the 2E, 2C. And then we started to get to these GUIs, you know, obviously with the Mac and, the and so on. I think the Lisa just turned 40. I d- I've never seen wow. that. Yeah. So it would have been really um, kind of evolutionary at that stage to try and leverage what was happening in the computer world and bring it back into the real world. Um, what kind of stuff were you, were you trying way, way back then? It, it was really basic things. And, you know, it was just... Things like writing essays were so much easier when I didn't have to rewrite the thing because I got a bunch of stuff wrong, or, yeah. or I, you know, it was it was as dorky as it sounds in primary school. You know, writing my essays on a computer and printing them up so that they looked a lot neater than they did the otherwise, and, yeah. and and desktop publishing, right? Like that. You know, obviously, this was for school, so it wasn't a commercial output, but I could put pictures in there and and things that yeah. Again, I wasn't trying to do it to prove a point. It just felt like a better medium for me, a more uh, natural or a more efficient and effective medium. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So I really enjoyed that about it. And again, I'll keep using this word enabling because I think that that's really it. Absolutely. So you went on, you were in in your university in Newcastle. um, You have a psychology background and you worked in a number of practices um, where you got to apply psychology i guess and the design the, the mix of the two and i want to t- talk a little bit more in the, the kind of the career arc that's happened mm-hmm. okay because around that time in the early 2000s a lot of the hci stuff was grounded in the principles of psychology and i know i came from a an industrial design background and i was knocking on the door trying to get in and they're like no you don't have a psychology degree and i'm kind of going i want to get in but i can't get in and then it sort of shifted in the the mid 2000s where i was like okay actually we need some more of the systems thinking we need more of the design lens and i was mm-hmm. like suddenly i had the key then but it looks like what you're doing now 
has come back full, almost full circle. And now we're at that point where we need to understand the psychological understandings of the the rationale when we're talking about design and the contextual understanding of these situations. Is that something that you feel now, like the stuff that you did in your past um, is starting to to reemerge almost and uh, have a lot more of a, a strength to your bow, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've always had uh, throughout the, the last 23 years a real interest in both the academic side and the pure research side yeah. of, uh, of HCI and and uh, aspects of user experience and have tried to you know be involved, whether it's attending Kaya, the Computer Interaction Global Conference, or um, Mobile HCI for many years was uh, a, a global conference that I, academic conference that I enjoyed, and obviously uh, OzKai here in Australia. Because I think there is so much that uh, that adds value, whether it's a research methodology. Uh, a lot of these conferences are actually, uh, surprisingly, when I first went along, are more engineer types who are sort of looking at different interface uh, mm. input or output mechanisms and still trying to work out how that might be useful to a to an end consumer at some point in the future. Mm. Things like uh, haptic feedback and so on you know, academic papers, and, and now we carry something, you know, something like an Apple Watch that's got haptic feedback and our phones have haptic feedback. But these have gone through long processes of of uh, industrial research or academic research to the point where these things are cost-effective to put into a device. Yeah. And as that that device becomes more complex, the research and sort of background that needs to create those experiences, I think becomes deeper and you need to have a deeper understanding of perception, memory, learning. Once you start combining all these different interface elements, whether it's, you know, speech interaction, uh, looking at different interface, there's like maybe through AR glasses we Mm. might talk about later. Yeah. And things like that. They're they're more complex things individually. And when we Mm. put them together, they're in, you know, that just has a network effect of making them uh, significantly more complex. So I think a a lot of that tradition, and you see this with the the VR and AI headsets, they've come from a long history of investment from DARPA and, you know, those big sort Mm. of academic and industrial research uh, facilities that have now led to things like, you know, whether it's the Facebook glasses or whatever, but there's a yeah. strong path. And there's still so much money being invested in that side of it, right? It's We saw that evolution where it went to uh, when we are in the early thousands of it being fairly, you know, desktop-based and we had pretty standard screen sizes and you you knew that people had a keyboard and a mouse and they weren't wandering around with this thing. So the design constraints were much more... Absolutely. Um, specific and fixed. And uh, so that allowed more experimentation uh, and mm. from an artistic and creative perspective. Uh, and now I think as we come back to these very uh, hopefully natural ways of interacting with technology, we need mm. to re- know more about people and how they want yeah. to interact. This, the systems have become much more complex as well. You know, mm. the, the evolution of the, the user base, we're using an awful lot more technology on our bodies and in our homes and so forth. So naturally the the scale and the contextual understanding is going to be much richer and much harder to understand as well at scale. It's almost created a new wicked problem for us to solve. Yeah. In in some senses. Going back to the the mid two thousands when you were talking there about the the desktop constraints, 
can you just give us an example of some of those things? Was it, was it Second Life? Is that the kind of stuff that you were talking? Remember Second Life? I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, uh, I do. Absolutely. Uh, I think ABC, uh, our national broadcaster had a, a Second Life environment. There were a lot of people playing around with it. That was it was, it was more experimental. And that, that spatial, what would have been called a spatial interface back then of uh, being able to move in a more natural way around a screen and have mm. conversations, you know, avatar-based conversations and things like that. But it's still a 2D experience yeah. fundamentally, right? It's not what we sort of talk about uh, in terms of spatial computing of inter- integrating with the real physical world. So. Sure. So some of the stuff that um, in the research for this, I know you're heavily involved and you're heavily interested, should I say, in spatial computing, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, imagine you're speaking to a, a somebody who has no experience in this. How would you describe what it is? Yes, yeah, certainly. Spatial computing to us is this combination of technologies, both inputs and outputs uh, for human-computer interaction. And they can understand the real world, the physicality of the real world. So what's yeah. around you? Where are you now? Uh, is there a wall over there? Is there a river over there? So using things like computer vision, etc., cetera. Uh, and bringing that information and integrating it with digital content. So you might be able to embed a digital uh, element into that real physical environment and if the wind is blowing at a certain speed, it might sway this digital object in a certain way. Or if noise levels are at a certain thing, it might affect that. Most people have a, an awareness of something like Pokemon uh, Go, where you've got your mobile device and you're, you're pointing it at the real world. And there's something that looks, it, it's really overlaid. It doesn't really understand the physicality of the world. It doesn't know yeah. that there's a road there and things like that. But that's sort of most people's experience. And a lot of AR, mobile AR experiences are sort of very marketing orientated at the moment and and things. And spatial computing is sort of taking that to, and and we like to think about it as a future state and whether that's sort of a couple of years away or or 10 years Mm -hmm. away where people are wearing glasses and and Doug Bowman at Virginia Tech sort of uh, uses the term everyday AR. So Mm -hmm. would somebody be walking around with, let's say, a pair of AI glasses, and what sort of things would they want to interact with uh, in terms of digital content? Yeah. And, um, and and we've been doing a lot of thinking about this from a use case perspective because, uh, again, you know, having spent so long in the mobile industry, 20, 20 years looking at mobile user experience specifically, yeah. there's a lot that's happening in this spatial computing space that's very similar. The technology at the moment is very big, it's heavy, uh, battery constrained, uh, field of view is terrible, like what you can actually see looking out of the glasses, the resolution, the brightness, all of those things, just like mobile screens were you know, 20 years ago, right? But yeah. we feel now's the time to start thinking and there's a lot of investment going into the technology, but how is it going to be used by the person, right? Mm. The human. And we believe that time to start researching that, understanding those use cases is now so that we can start to guide potentially uh, whether they're operating system level, at an application level, at a service level, yeah. what those engagements might be. And also uh, the individual's perspective on that, their levels of trust and safety, given yeah. the intimate nature of, of it is very something like an AR glasses. It is a very intimate thing. Like the shareability of what you're seeing in your glasses is, is massively limited. So what you're seeing at the moment 
through if you're wearing a pair of glasses not google glass but whatever um what does that look like in terms of uh the experience because it's it's very isolated in that sense is there any scope around how it could be you know shared amongst groups of people is is that you know so i'm I'm thinking of the applications of surgeons when they're Mm -hmm. operating has that been explored a little bit more around the, the sort of the spatial computing in a shared environment Absolutely. So it's interesting you bring up surgery because Magic Leap 2, which is one of these sort of yeah. um, startups that has had a, a ton of investment and is sort of more, was going to be sort of consumer orientated as mm-hmm. well as enterprise. And they've really doubled down on enterprise. They've just been a, approved as the first set of AR glasses for oh, use really? in the surgical the FTA. environment. The, yes. I I forget which standard it is, okay. but, but um, yeah. So, so yes. So coming back to that shared experience around mm-hmm. augmented reality, one of the or spatial computing more broadly is is understanding the observer's position, understanding a combined shared experience, and yeah. then also thinking about what we call the bystander experience as well, right? Because how does somebody else be involved if those people are having an experience that is inherently invisible to them? Yeah, uh, you know, is that via a screen or are they dialing into a conference call type experience through a two D screen or, or whatever that might Absolutely. be? Absolutely. It's that consideration and the fact that the the beauty is that you can see around you, right? So you can see that somebody's there as compared to a VR where you're in an immersive experience that you can't see. It's kind of a see-through experience. But it's also the complexity around the data sharing there um, because you you can't really interface it unless you're doing something with Blink. Um, So who controls in that sense? Because now we're moving into the the spatial computing. So someone is Mm -hmm. making the decision on the contextual delivery of the information at the right time in the right place. What's the um, the ethical considerations in around that, that engine? Yeah, I'll take that from two sides. The first one is yeah. the that ethical aspect of uh, there are cameras on these devices often, and even if they're not a standard camera, they might be a LiDAR camera, so mm-hmm. they can't see who that person is, but they understand that there's a physical person there. Uh, they understand you're in an environment, et cetera. Uh, so a lot of that data about the context of use mm. uh, is is could be you know absolutely abused in the wrong hands. So yeah. that data ownership over the, my environment and what these devices can detect and use is a critical piece of this. So how do we trust either the vendor of the hardware yeah. or the vendor of the hardware, the vendor of the software, and the vendor of whether it's an application or whatever that might be, we want to be confident. And do we control that in that we allow access and or we can delete things from our history or yeah. whatever it might be, I think is a critical piece. And the vendor of the environment as well. So Sorry, I missed it. The vendor of the environment as well, if there's a contextual yes. understanding at the environmental level. So I'm thinking in prisons, um, yeah. like where we start getting into this whole kind of I don't know. It's it's a it's a cluster, potentially, like in in the nicest possible way. Like who, how, and uh, how are they being managed, and how, how do you see it being managed? And, and we're not looking for a, a concrete answer yes, from from Oliver. We heard it from Oliver. <laughs> he said it was going to be government. What does that look like? Because we're starting to move into the conversation, like a, a segue from Scott Jensen's conversation a, a number mm-hmm. of weeks or months ago. We were talking Great about how does this, how do we start the conversation around these things? Because that's the bit that really 
and I am one of those kind of nerds. That's the stuff that I think about when I'm falling asleep. I'm like, who's going to manage that? Yeah. And what about look like? And and I think some of the stuff that we're starting to play with and and prototype is extrapolating out from some elements of current technology hmm. that might be able to do that. And intelligent agents are critical to that. So especially for that understanding of context and putting a combination of contextual information elements together to create an experience. So yeah. things like focus modes, like that, you know, Apple have really been uh, focused on <laughs> really? uh, with iOS 16 and, and, and prior yeah. as well. Uh, and looking at to what degree can somebody construct their own focus mode to yeah. be specific to a context. But these things are, are complex. And, you know, again, looking back to mobile, it was like how many people are going to go and customize their mobile settings and all that sort of stuff. It takes a lot of effort. So yeah. we're expecting that artificial intelligence will play a key role in that, in interacting and guiding the intelligent agent uh, but that there will probably be a more human role uh, in training that uh, purposefully or that the intelligent agent is checking in probably at a higher rate of frequency to start with when it's introducing a change in uh, interaction uh, and getting confirmation. And there should be sort of, you know, the opportunity potentially to, to hmm. learn quickly from the system side. Yeah. But again, I think we don't want to paint the picture of this thing being in your face all the time we see it starting out as really maybe something really simple like one of the, the use cases that we sort of play with is imagine a, a reminder service that was physically located right so if i'm walking past somewhere that uh, maybe i set a reminder to hey when you go past this library remember to look at this particular book that's held in this library and I can see from far away, or as I get closer to that library, maybe from five kilometers, that there's a there's some sort of visual indicator that there's a reminder there, and I might want to engage with that and go, "Hey, what that is? What is that?" Or as I get closer to it, I get this more a level, higher level of detail yeah. to go, "Oh, this is a reminder about the book. Um, the library isn't open yet, but it'll open 15 minutes." Mm. How do we make that really succinct and appropriate? Because we don't want to busy the visual field; it needs to be highly uh, relevant and, and and contextual right so so those aspects of the things we're going what's the least you can start with that yeah. will add value and i think a lot of the headset stuff is trying to be these big field of view very rich immersive like like high fidelity things and i don't think that's necessarily uh something that's achievable in the short term. And I don't think it's necessary to provide a good experience. Yeah. Unfortunately, there was a company called Mojo Vision who were working on a contact lens and one of their key sort of offerings was going to be this opportunity to help people um, with low vision identify edges of things. Right? Uh, okay, yeah. Now that in, its, in and of itself is is potentially a very powerful use case. Yeah. Uh, and very simply, and unfortunately, they've pivoted to, to look at um, technology uh, display technology aspects yeah. but there's a project aria research in australia which is looking at how can somebody wear an augmented reality headset who is blind and people go well if it's a pair of glasses then they're blind how does that help and the face is actually a useful point for detecting information right so these this headset uses echolocation and wow. enables blind people or low vision people to get an understanding of their environment right hmm. it happens to be head mounted because that's 
the orientation position, right? That's most important. It's crazy. Like as you're talking here, I'm like, I've I've encountered some of this stuff before. I just remembered I did my my finished uni in 2001. Um, my main project I called it Lida L E D A, which is Latin for finder. I think it was people who really speak Latin are like, um, that's not true. <laughs> but in, <laughs> in my mind, I think it was at the time. But um, it was a little robot that scoured the the environment around for visually impaired people to feedback mm-hmm. audio and visual context through an in ear device. And I remember people going, that's never going to happen. And I jumped out of my seat when I saw Google Maps. I was like, oh, my God, that's that's almost what I'm talking about. A car goes around and maps the world and feeds it back in. So what you're talking there is really it's kind of kind of similar in um, in execution. But I want to ask you um, over over COVID times, OK, there was a huge pattern and I was one of them. Right. Switched off all my notifications. OK, I was mm-hmm. in hyper arousal mode for for years and I probably still am and I've really very carefully and heavily curated the notifications that get shared on my mobile device so I have the control on what gets displayed on my mobile device if it's in the wrong hands um (laughs) Facebook um and (laughs) glad you said yeah well I don't care (laughs) come and get me Zuck um if if it's in the wrong hands well, what are the, what's the worst things that can happen? Because there's two sides of the conversation. One, the the user pays and they pay heavily for the service and the device and they manage their data. Or the other side of it is someone like Facebook. They create the devices, they leverage the data and they sell it on to advertisers. Um, what what are the kind, of, kind of the pros and cons for both there in that sense? Because you need to get mass adoption for in order to become normalized. Otherwise, you're going to end up seeing these people walking around cities, talking to their glasses, and um, yeah. instantly they're like, they're the ones with the money. Let's mug them. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and we, and we saw you know variations of this with the glass hole when Google Glass yeah. came out, right? And and that social element. So I think there's there's two sides of that. There's the social aspect, which is how am I perceived? Yeah. And, you know, there's that element of, well, 20 years ago, if somebody was walking around without a mobile next to their head and talking to themselves, you oh. would have called them insane. But now we're all happily walking around with our AirPods in. And yeah. No one's blinking an eyelid. So I think there's the socialization of technology and the right timing of that. And that needs to be slow and deliberate from yeah. and, and carefully done to build that trust yeah uh, with that consumer base to make sure that they feel they are in control and that there is the benefit there now you know you can say that about facebook because there's lots of people who engage with facebook and they yeah. have the, what to what degree have they given up that privacy and to what degree for for what benefit mm-hmm. and will that be different with an ar experience I, I still expect that there would be a, a sliding scale. Some people will be more ready to do that. Some people will be a lot yeah. less. In in my, you know, I come from very much the perspective of uh, data ownership by the individual and, and data control by the individual. Now, if that individual has the option and decides to uh, monetize some of their information mm-hmm. To, to subsidize a service or whatever, then that could be up to them. But I think these types of technology are inherently so much more personal mm. that it, it it will become, while it might be 
less visible to people today who are engaging with services like we've mentioned and yeah. what they do go about because it's 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 not there in their face this will literally be in their face right yeah nobody wants to see a bunch of ads pop in to, uh, to their field of view as they're walking down the street so so Ooh. i think those business models will always have an influence and and there will, there will be sliding scales but i think the emphasis will be on uh, individual control over that data how do you see and, it? and and sorry and 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 i think part of our interest uh, in engaging with this area now knowing that it's not going to be a commercial reality in in you know a short period of time is that we need to start thinking about these things now because the technology yeah. for better or worse is happening and there's that investment and people are exploring this stuff we as designers who uh, want to represent or understand the human condition and represent that and hear that voice in those pro those design processes whether they're hardware or software uh, needs to be happening now and and one of the groups is the XR guild who you know are really looking at those ethical principles to to, to guide design around these types of technologies have they created a set of principles that are ready to they share have. they have yeah okay yes. well, well, maybe so if you go to the xrguild.org uh that'll lead okay. you to yeah yeah um, i'll put a link in the show notes for that one of the things that people um like to to jump on the bandwagon and, and talk about google glass as being like oh it was the wrong execution and stuff like that well a lot of the time people fail to really understand that timing is one of the biggest mm. uh sort of it's one of the restrictive factors for success of innovative products like this mm -hmm. um we're, how far away do you think we are in terms of if something like the Google Ass was released today, I think it would have a greater chance of success. Um, I agree. And, and if it was integrated, uh, I think there's a couple of months. It was really a heads-up sort of type device, heads-up display type device. Yeah. Uh, it had some understanding, but a lot of it was about notifications and things like that. I think... Yeah there are things that if you are integrated with the physical envi environment around you to a greater detail that will offer more value hmm. but i think you could have a similar product that is more deeply integrated with my mobile device and is acting more like a a display for my mobile device like i leave my mobile in my pocket similar to you know a, a smartwatch sort yeah. of thing where i'm attending less to the full screen of my mobile uh, and looking at more stuff through glasses, I I fully expect it to start with because of battery and the you know not everybody obviously wears glasses. I don't wear glasses all the time, just when I'm I'm reading and things. That uh, people need to adapt to that form factor, and there's some really other interesting form factors in the AR space as well. That mm. um, there's a company called uh, Humane, who's a couple of ex Apple uh, alumni who are creating an AR. Uh, what's probably going to be a display tech, a laser display tech. So you sort of wear it on your chest potentially and it will output a display onto your hand or onto a surface near you that you could potentially then interact with, right? And it's using a camera for computer vision input uh, okay. and potentially an intelligent agent for input uh, and conversational UI. But um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a set of glasses. There's a bunch yeah. of, of really interesting... So it, it's not in in the um, the realms of uh, you know kind of ten fifteen years. We you probably think that it's going to be sooner. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So I think uh, within five years we'll see 
things that are useful to us that we are wearing. Uh, it might be in a shorter uh, session duration. It might be something like using uh, for virtual screen use. So maybe I'm uh, a businessman or a businesswoman and I'm at my computer at my desk a lot of the time, but then I want to go on a business trip and I don't want someone looking over my shoulder when I'm in the airplane, but I want mm -hmm. a big screen, but I don't want to carry a big screen. So I could just have my device, whether that's my mobile, whether it's a mm -hmm. keyboard that I pop in into my bag and it is the computing power is contained in there and yeah. that I'm using this, this headset as the display technology. And that's a very sort of standard use case. But I think there's some opportunities there that are sort of low-hanging fruit that will, mm. again, sort of make this a bit more mainstream, not, not general uh, customer, but mm -hmm. be built around those verticals. Uh, there's a lot of AR use in, in industrial settings at the moment with, um, yeah. with various uh, information and, and so on. So, yeah, I think it will broaden out. There will be something that is consumer-priced, uh, yeah. though not a strong uptake. And over that sort of maybe five to 10-year period, there, that consumer uptake will, okay. will increase. You know, there's a lot of rumors that Apple will bring out something this year um, that will probably be quite niche and developer-orientated to start with. Uh, but the aim is to get the developers on board and and creating these these mm. whether it's um, you know applications or content or, or or experiences of some type, and I think that's the interesting thing. Like I really think that we'll move away from this app focused experience uh, or to a more broader engagement across different devices of which the glasses are yeah. uh, part of an output or or whatever that might be. The way, the way I see constellation of devices, the constellation of devices, I see it like a like a, a recipe, a recipe thing, and mm -hmm. you're adding an ingredient. The app is the ingredient you're adding into your own system, and and it adds that extra flavor to it if you want. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm going out for this particular type of experience. Yeah, do I wear my watch? Do I wear my glasses? Do I take my phone? Like, I'll go out for a walk now, and I don't take my phone anymore because I've got my watch and my my headphones. Right. Yeah. Um, if I don't need to take photos, then that doesn't really matter that I don't have my phone. So all of the stuff that we're speaking about here um, tends to use a, a number of factors like environment and um, so forth. What about the biometric understanding of the contextual understanding of, of when is the right time based on the mental well-being of the, pe the person using it? So the amount of times I use my my, my sort of notifications come through my device and I say two words to it and it begins at F and finishes a bit off. Um, <laughs> I'm like, not the right time. I'm obviously rushing to get the kids. My heart rate is up. Um, I'm like, I don't, I don't care about this stuff about, you know, an offer for discounted trainers. I'm like, not now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where's the potential for this? Cause like, the, like I'm wearing a smartwatch and my biometrics are being read. It's been owned by Google Fitbit. And, um, and when I look at, you know, I spoke to Amy Butcher a number of weeks ago, who um, is CPO at, uh, a chief behavior officer, should I say, at Lirio, an American business. Yeah, I listened to that one. And it's really, in, uh, it's really, really interesting because their business model is around the change of the behavior. Um, mm -hmm. And that's massively going to shift the service design capabilities and potential for services. I, I can see so many um, empowering pieces that could alter how we design services moving forward hmm. but that biometric that human aspect is the bit that i keep on coming back to like you know 
um, when and how we go about doing these things. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, by by, and let's go with the glasses for a, a second. You know, things like understanding where somebody's gaze goes mm. is potentially uh, has huge implications if that data can be accessed by a third party, right? Yeah, uh, or conveyed even to people within that environment potentially. Uh, so that privacy element is is really critical from from our perspective. And again, you you want to. I think the onus is on us to design better experiences that people will want to engage with. And again, the notifications, you know, world that we live in at the moment is just too overwhelming and it's not right. And you almost need to reset that and go, okay, what do I, what is important enough for me? And that's why I think this sort of focus mode type approach is interesting because you can whitelist things or you can blacklist things and, you know, in certain contexts you can turn some information on and and some things off, right? And, you know, part of my passion is design fiction and, and being able to explore that future state and think through, okay, what could that be? Because speculative, yeah. it's not going to be tomorrow, right? We're not going to have an artificial intelligence through an intelligent agent. I mean, we get frustrated enough with the various intelligent agents that we have in our lives that can't yeah. really do too much beyond music and, yeah. and timers, right? And not even that very well half the time. So True. so I appreciate that it's it's far from a solved problem in and of themselves, intelligent agent, speech interaction, IoT, all of those things. Uh, but I do believe that we need to start thinking about how that might happen. And one of the frameworks that we came up with was this, this idea of, you know, instead of just this app-based model, what might an AR sort of layers of experience, we we refer to it as, uh, how might that help? And that's things like there is a notification layer because the notifications are still going to be critical, but yeah. that but that filter on that we expect would be so much stronger, right? Like don't bother me unless it's a person that I that is in my close family or a you know work colleague or whatever my whitelist says yeah and between these hours and my colleagues can't contact me within or they know I'm in Fiji or Japan or wherever so don't mm-hmm. contact me because I'm not working or actually you can contact me whatever those you can be. do some but of those that. focus modes and, and constraints and settings they're complex to set up but hopefully the idea is exactly that the artificial intelligence through the intel- intelligent agent will be able to adapt to that over time. And and generative AI, we've got a, a client who's doing some fascinating work uh, in that space of being able to help individuals within a home uh, who are neurodiverse or have different range of physical impairments mm. via an intelligent agent and adapt uh, to their capabilities and the nuances of their behavior, right? Which only might play out over weeks or months, right? Like, yeah. or seasons even, right? Because they have such a strong influence on in our behavior. Something that happens uh, yeah. when the sun goes down in summer is might be significantly different to the same time in winter. How are you staying on top of this, uh, this, not going to say way of thinking, but this, this, um, emerging part of design, like these conversations that we need to be having, I know you used to run a, a mobile group in Sydney. Was it Mondays or something? I remember mobile it. Monday, yes. Is mobile Monday, Sydney, and and also the mobile industry group under the Australian Interactive Media Industry. Space, space computing. Uh, uh, 
No, it was the There's answer. an answer to that. Um, you put me on the spot. The, I am thinking through that, uh, and I think there's an opportunity to have conversations. And over the last conf- couple of years, we've been communicating with a small group, both locally here in Australia and also globally. F- firstly, to listen, to understand who yeah. is out there. There are p- amazing people out there, like Ali Heston from a UX perspective, uh, who worked with Magic Leap and is with Niantic or until recently with Niantic. There's a lot of thought leaders out there who write amazing stuff. And a lot of that is tracking them, understanding, uh, but we haven't, and, and we've been sort of keeping that a bit in-house so that we have something sensible to say when we engage in those conversations. Yeah. Uh, but but another element of what we're doing is we're doing a lot of that prototyping and thinking through frameworks and all sorts of things in-house just to get us in that mode of thinking for pure research. This is not stuff that we're doing on our UX consultancy day-to-day. We yeah. might go and talk to um, you know a big telco or a, a big retailer about what, we, what we're doing because it's interesting, but we're not selling this as a service yet because mm-hmm. we're still in that process. And we're doing things like engaging PhD researchers to look out at the academic research that ha- is happening in this field mm. and collate that and draw that back in because, again, I want us to be founded in HCI and, and really yeah. sort of the use cases be extrapolated through the information and and pure research that's happened and us obviously extend those to prototypes in maybe different fields or whatever, but then do user research as they go out uh, through a different domain or through a different yeah. interface type or, or whatever. It's kind of amazing because the, the world of HCI kind of died off a little bit when UX kind of, you know, took over the world. It's almost like HCI is returning in some sense. Yeah, I think there's a greater appreciation for the importance of rigorous research yeah. uh, and research methodology. And, you know, one of the things that I've always, which I love about the the UX industry is you can be, the, the technology, the rate of technology change is exciting and there are exciting things happening. Um, yeah. There's certain things that I'm not interested in. I'm not really focused on VR. Somebody might be really excited by that. Um, I'm focused on this particular area of spatial computing and there's so much changing that it's evolving and we watch it evolve. And with mobile, we saw that. And I think as people who, especially in Australia, I think we have this mindset that these things are designed by global operators and thrust upon us. And sometimes we can think at that level and whether it's designing services, we might be not be designing the OS per se, but we might be designing services, but we can still, it's not a solved problem. We think that these people know the answer and are doing the right thing. And sometimes they haven't had time to do that research or to think through that particular use case or that extrapolation. So yeah, I think it's it's a fun thing, and that's you know obviously uh, I've I've the luxury of running my own company and being able to play around with stuff and Absolutely. explore this stuff. <clears throat> one last question for you, and it's uh, one that I'm sure every listener is probably thinking about here. Do you think it'll be T one or T two that is going to come back in time? <laughs> that side of things, yes. Uh, I do, I do not have an opinion on that. No. Uh, Hopefully the uh, AR glasses will identify them and uh, remove them with the lasers uh, beaming out from them. Uh, yeah, we'll T2 is a little bit funnier, I think. 
Well, Jerry, I'm so old that I'll probably be dead by then anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Oliver, <laughs> people want to reach out to you and, um, you know, ask questions and stuff like that. Um, we could put a link to your business website in there as well for people to, to follow you because you're definitely doing some interesting stuff. And there's a great video on your website as well, which understands and outlays spatial computing. Um, but what are the best channels? And we've got a bunch of other videos that yeah. um, in not too distant future will be linked from that website uh, to display some examples of what I've been talking about, prototypes that we're working on with their video oh, prototypes awesome. or in-headset prototypes uh, to showcase. And, of course, Twitter was a thing. I used to be uh, there and and both reading and, and talking, but I've made the move over to Mastodon, but it's not quite... I'm enjoying it, but the AR community, interestingly, doesn't seem to have migrated, and I thought they would have been some of the first, or maybe I'm just I just can't see them. I'm not sure yet. From yeah, over there as well. follow Scott Jensen though. He's he's the uh, yeah, of course. He's the man who's who's kind of like directing me and some of the stuff I'm asking. But um, we'll put a link to your LinkedIn as well. Um, yes, that's LinkedIn. probably the most beneficial these yeah, days. Absolutely. But Oliver, listen, like I finished the episodes with um, thanking the guests for their openness, their honesty. And their vulnerability as well and answering a lot of the questions. And hopefully I didn't put you on the spot too much today, but I really, really enjoyed speaking with you, Oliver. Jerry, it was a, a true honor. Um, what are you, what, how many are you up to now? Are you nearly at 250? 251, I think it is, 252 on this. Wow. Estate. Like, and, and thank you because it, it's such a valuable resource and it's so lovely to get all the different perspectives that you gather from around the world. It's, it's really amazing. So I oh, really appreciate the work that you do. Really, really appreciate that coming from yourself. So um, thanks so much for that. All the best. There you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening.